Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger. I don't even know what to open the episode with because I think the real opening will go to our the uh, the bonus episode showing you what my <laughs> my golf app's calculated handicap is for me. <laughs> I'm disgusted and alarmed. <laughs> and you bear witness to all of those shots. So yeah, thanks again. I did. I shouldn't have been as, as surprised as I was. I guess. Uh, anyways, you know me. I know how bad I am. I still have just as much fun. I don't want to say there's nowhere but up. <laughs> you just didn't think it could be this far down to start. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, good thing we uh, I have a hockey podcast, and that's what we're talking about today, because, boy, am I not good at the golf side of things yet. Hockey news continues to roll on. The draft continues to approach. Platitudes continue to be uh, put out by the uh, the commissioner. Arizona's still looking for a home. The salary cap's still in turmoil. More of the usual, but more news. Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast, folks, here to talk to you about all things Detroit Red Wings hockey, uh, the world of the NHL, the NHL draft, and mercifully not my golf game. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Hanna. I'm Brad Crisco. And I'm Evan. On this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast, we are going to be discussing uh, one of the more popular prospects that could potentially go to Detroit with one of their two first round picks, Uh, talk of a potential trade up or down. A uh, quick update on the Stanley Cup final uh, news from across the NHL, including Gary Bettman's uh, press conference where he talked about Arizona, the sale of the Senators, the uh, the salary cap, which is ex- especially pertinent to Detroit. Mike Babcock is returning as a coach to the NHL uh, and uh, plenty more. And we'll see what else we get into before overtime. Before that, I do want to let you know that this podcast is almost entirely supported by our Patreon supporters. Uh, patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast if you do want to go the extra mile to support the show that's how you do it uh, our patrons are the uh, heart and soul of this show everything that we do which is you know the growth and continued uh, production of this podcast the expansion into our uh, uh, winged wheel podcast content universe through the show expected by whom and they just interviewed none other than assistant gm of the carolina hurricanes eric tulski so be sure to give that episode a listen uh, our support of the Jamie Daniels Foundation through the uh, Winged Wheel podcast nights at the LCA events, partnered with the Detroit Red Wings. Uh, all of that and more is uh, supported by our patrons. You get uh, a lot of great perks, access to our Patreon-exclusive uh, overtime bonus episodes, which we reference at the start of the show, uh, our Winged Wheel podcast Discord community, and you're automatically entered into all of our giveaways. So uh, lots there for you, and it means the world to us if you can and choose to do so. So patreon.com slash podcast. Brad, before we uh, hit record here, you said, will the Red Wings really draft a small defenseman? And based on how the last, you know, four years have gone, I'd say it's pretty unlikely. But Axel Sandin Pelica does make, make things interesting. He's not the only defenseman that people are talking about. We just covered Reinbacher, Will Anders there, Simashev's there. But Sandin Pelica has a little something to him where you're like, this guy could be special. He could be really great, but he could be special. He has that flair in my eye. And, and uh, I'm wondering what if like what needs to come into play for a defenseman for Steve Eisman to break the mold in terms of who he drafts. And does Sandine Pelica have that? So who is he as a player? What's the likelihood he goes to Detroit? And, and what's the range he, he could be drafted at in the 2023 NHL draft? If, if you want to answer that uh, last part first, uh, range anywhere from 
seven to the mid twenties. Um, I've seen him ranked all along those lines, ever in between mock drafts all over the place, you know, the rumors all over the place. So he is one of the true wild cards of this draft, especially um, when you look at the Stanley Cup finals right now, specifically Vegas, their smallest defenseman is six foot one, which is definitely going to scare teams off from smallish defensemen. It's, you know, well, where I'll start is what is going to help a team or ease a team's mind in drafting a defenseman of his size? It's if he's got a high compete level and he and he's committed defensively. Well, Sandine Pelica checks both those boxes, which is what makes him interesting compared to, you know, I feel like every year there's one or two defensemen in this range, in this mold, and it's just like, well, how high is the offense to compensate for the defense and what team's going to bite? I don't think that's the same conversation with Sandy and Pelica. He was the top defenseman at the U18s, literally named top defenseman of the tournament. Um, Sweden basically rolled out their defensive pairing so that one of him or Willander were on the ice the entire game in the in the gold medal game. Um, he he performed very very well in that role. You know he annihilated uh, Swedish juniors, uh, the J20 this year. I think he was over a point per game and about a half a goal per game and fared well in the SHL and the looks he got there. I I have to be honest, I'm a big, big Sandine Pelica fan. Um, the only thing that complicates my opinion on him relative to the Red Wings is I'm still pretty steadfast. The Red Wings should go two forwards uh, with their two first round picks, but Sandine Pelica is the defenseman that gives me the most pause on that theory. And it's, you know, not because of his defensive play, even though it is good, especially for a defenseman his size. It's he has the traits I like in a defenseman most. He's smart and he's patient. Mm-hmm. He he lets the game come to him and then he rips the opponent apart based on what they give him. He doesn't force plays. He doesn't, you know take a lot of like super high risk, super high reward plays. He makes the smart plays and he takes what's available. Like, you know, I don't view him as a Quinn Hughes, even though I've seen that you get that a lot with small defensemen. I I think they're very different defensemen. Um, Obviously I don't think his ceiling's this high, but I I view him more in the Eric Carlson mold. And I've, I've seen that comparison thrown around a bit too from others. I don't think his offensive gifts are as high as Carlson, but I also think on the defensive end, he's light years ahead of where Carlson was at at the same age, and maybe even now. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's not... It's a pretty low bar. Yeah. For a guy who's about to win the Norris still. Yeah, yeah. but then Eric Carlson's offense is generational, and that is not what Sandine Pelica is going to be, but Sandine Pelica has the potential to be, if everything goes right, one of the top two-way, primarily offensive defensemen in the NHL. If everything goes right, because he has this skill to pull off those shifty moves along the blue line that you quite often see from an Eric Carlson or a Rasmus Dahlin. Again, not to that level, but in the same mold. Um, He's got an above average shot. So if there's a lane that's available for him to let it go, he can capitalize that despite being undersized, kind of like how Ryan Ellis always did it. And um, again, it's just, He's smart and patient. His skating's good, not anything special, which is a big hindrance to an undersized defenseman. But 
you know, he, he works his ass off on the ice. He's smart. He's patient. And he's got this skill to pull off the things he sees. You know, if that, when that seam opens up for a cross ice pass, but you only got a split second, he, he sees it when he's got a, you know, uh, we'll call it a back checker, even though it's, let's say it's off an offensive cycle mm. who he's got leaning the wrong way. He burns, he can burn him the other way. And, you know, it's just, it's hard to find a defenseman that can pick apart a defense with his brain the way Sandine Pelica can at this age. But again, it, you can't not ignore the fact that he's, you know, a five nine five ten defenseman who's an okay skater. That's going to scare a lot of teams. It's funny you say that. I don't have that big of a problem with his skating. I think he's he's good enough with the puck on his stick. I don't don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I have a problem with his skating. If he was six two, his skating would be viewed as a huge asset. Yeah, and that's what I'm I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, but that's the thing. It's it, his skating's not high end enough to overcome the size. I understand. Yeah. yeah, everything that you mentioned about him, it it does track well with me. And you put that all into a package and. I just, I, I can't help but sit there and look at it and say, you know, a lot of people have this guy ranked in the mid-teens or later, and I just don't see how. I know the Quinn Hughes comparison is not a one-to-one. Like, they are stylistically different. Like, there are notable differences in who they are as players. But Sandine Pelica seems like a guy where you could put him into that rare pool where the sky's the limit, really, for him. He could come together into something that is absolutely phenomenal, uh, you know, a bonafide top pairing defenseman. And how often can you get that kind of player without him being, you know, a, a Miro Heiskanen or Kale McCarr where they're going in the top three or four or whatever it is. It's hard to find, but he seems to have those attributes, the the talent there where you look back and you say, yeah, we didn't take this guy because he's 5'10", weighs like a, what, a buck 75. And that was a mistake because he's so talented. I also want to say 5'10", 175 is a perfectly fine weight and height. So I would even call that exceptionally tall, not biased at all. But in all honesty, his offensive ability, like you said, Brad, his defensive game is way beyond a lot of guys who are, you know, all offense from the blue line and, and a travesty in their own zone. He, he He's the kind of package where I'm torn because, yes, I would love for the Red Wings to take a forward at pick nine, but I don't think there's a, a chance in hell that he's going to be there at 17 for Detroit. So what do you do there? Yeah, I think if you want him, it, it's got to be nine. I don't think 17. I, I've seen him ranked later than that, but I just realistically, I, I don't see that happening. Again, I'm I'm a proponent of two forwards here, but one hell of a forward would have to drop to 17 to get me to pass on Cindy and Pelica if he's there. I think really where teams will start arguing is, you know, what defenseman do they want stylistically if they're thinking they're going to draft a defenseman. Do you go with a Reinbacher? Maybe, obviously, doesn't have the offensive gifts that Sandine Pelican has, but he's probably more refined as a defenseman. The classic, uh, quote-unquote, higher floor, perhaps. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think it really comes down to the style of, of defenseman that a team would want to draft. I mean, you watch highlights of Sandine Pelica. It's There's some jaw-dropping moments, and there's going to be teams that that will love, will love his style. So... You know, with the with the defenseman available in this draft, there's something for everybody. There's a flavor for everyone. It it really just depends what teams look for. And given how the Red Wings only draft Giants, uh, yeah. Sandine Pelica might not be the guy for them. But I could certainly see a, a world where he goes in the top 10. So it's funny that you say that, Evan. And I'm also glad you brought up stylistically 
you know, there's different types of defensemen. I think you're right, and Brad, you're right, that Steve Eisman has a prototypical defenseman that he likes. And frankly, him uh, executing on that, those massive defensemen who are pretty talented and pretty mobile for their size, long reach, hard to play against, but can still contribute. That's that's how Tampa Bay was built, and now that's exactly what the entire league is doing. So Steve Eisenman has <laughs> wrought this on the entire league and is now trying to draft against all these other GMs who are copying him from, it's not purely him, but that's what's been successful. That's all true. But the Red Wings just traded Philip Ronick. The Red Wings would love to have an everyday power play QB to go and contribute on the right side, have that offensive ability, have not just Mo Sider next to him, or, or not just have Mo Sider on the right side. So, you know, having that as a one two punch with whoever, uh, Edmondson and uh, for now, Wallman on the left side, that would be fantastic for Detroit. You know, it was hard for them to move Bertuzzi and for them to move Hronik. They would love to replace Bertuzzi and they would love to 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 replace the hole that Hronik left. And he did leave a big hole. It might not seem it over a long period of time, but last season especially, Hronik was a huge part of Detroit's game up until he took that hit from Reeves and then he fell off a little bit and he was also paired with Sherrod after that. But still, that's why I might think the Sandine Pelica could potentially break the mold here and they could go for him. Well, if we talk about what the Red Wings need and... You know, we've talked at length about the the three biggest positions of need being center, left wing, and right wing in that order. But I Detroit's all, close. All they need is yeah. <laughs> all those positions. Sir, yeah, all positions. But I know why we've had conversations about okay, well, get away from positions. What type of player do the Red Wings need? Like when we talk about forwards, we're referencing: do they need a shooter? Do they need a playmaker? Do they need a power forward? Whatever. With defensemen. You know, if we ignore the size and everything, what do they need more than anything else? They need a number one power play quarterback. Yeah. Most Sider can do it adequately, but it's definitely not his specialty. And he's definitely not, you know, an upper tier power play quarterback in the NHL. And that's not a knock on Mo. That's just the reality of his game. Most defensemen aren't. Yeah. Um, Sandine Pelica can be. And he shoots right, so that's convenient given the Red Wings' hole and lack of depth is on the right side. So they need a power play quarterback, they need to find offense from the blue line, and they need a right shot defenseman. That's check, check, check. The question isn't, do they need a Sandine Pelica? Because they very obviously do. The question is, does Steve Eisman want a Sandine Pelica? Because again, I can't get past his lengthy history of drafting gigantic defensemen. And that's not forever. Let's not forget, he made uh, Anthony D'Angelo first-round pick once upon a time. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the issues, and he punted on that pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> but but he's, he's not afraid of doing it. And again, Sandine Pelka might be the exception to the rule because he does have a higher compete level and a better defensive game than defensemen of his caliber typically have. But here's the thing for me. Again, I... Don't think he's got, he's going to be there at 17. Maybe a trade up possibility. But again, I just with the Fords that are going to fall, I'm, I'm really getting off the trade up train the more mocks I'm seeing. Just because I think they're going to get something really, really good at 17, no matter what. If you're drafting Sandine Pelica, it's going to have to be at nine. And if they're drafting Sandine Pelica at nine, knowing what forwards, caliber of forward is likely to be available. If they do it, they have to be thinking 
okay, this guy is a, t- a Quinn Hughes tier or higher. Yeah. Like that's the only way you do it. If you do not think he is at least that, and I understand that is a very high bar, probably an unreasonably high bar, but that for me is the bare minimum to take him at nine. Anderson, Draper, Eiserman, they all have to be sitting there going, yes, this kid is not just going to be a good right-handed defenseman for us. This kid is going to be a star, a legitimate capital S star. Anything less, you pass on the defenseman and you take a forward there because there are definitive star potential forwards who will be available as well, which again, I will reiterate, reiterate to me is a bigger position of need still. Hearing uh, what you're saying about Sandine Pelica and watching his tape, I I do just keep coming back to how well he thinks the game offensively and like, yeah, size be damned, position you're drafting at be damned. The Red Wings could sure use that. So we'll see how Detroit thinks. I know when we've talked to Ken in the past, Ken Daniels, he said, you know, Sandine Pelica would be a great fit that way. But again, the, the position that you're drafting in does make a difference. It'll be interesting. Like the one thing I will phrase this is he is my top-ranked defenseman. I personally have him ahead of Reinbacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, you can have the floor-ceiling argument all you want. Nobody, Anybody who's listened to this podcast for longer than a month knows I'm, I'd like, my drafting philosophy is ceiling, not floor. Yeah. Um, Just dingers he, all day, full swing. Yep. Yeah, there, there's a couple defensemen who I'd be content with at nine. Like, I'm not flipping tables. I'm, I'm, I'd be okay with it. And I know we had that Reinbacher conversation where I'm like, I'm good with it. Not going to be any near any one of my preferred picks, but I'd be good with it. Sandine Pelica might be the only defenseman where I'd be actively, like, I'd be happy if the Red Wings take him at nine. Like, yes, this is one of my top targets. I like this move. I understand this move. Um, so, you know, I again, still leaning forward, but Sandine Pelica would, would be... Uh, let me put it this way. My faith in Hakan Anderson, if he's pounding the table for Cindy Pelka <laughs> at nine, that's a really good sign. That's pretty much the entire draft profile for any European prospect is if, yeah, well, if this is happening, it means Hakan Anderson wanted to do it. And, and he has earned himself absolute carte blanche in terms of having our confidence at this point. So we'll see what the Red Wings do. I do want to jump this over to another draft conversation. And Brad, you mentioned that you are no, you're coming off a little bit the idea of trading up. And I, I want to talk about trading in general. We've done it a lot on this podcast, but let's reiterate for folks. Detroit has two first round picks, ninth overall and 17th overall. The 17th overall originally belonged to the Islanders. They got it from Vancouver in the Heronic trade. Uh, Vancouver got it in the Bo Horvat trade, et cetera, et cetera. Anyways, nine and 17, Detroit has the obvious story here where they've never won the draft lottery uh they've not ha- had that lottery luck and with how their team is positioned they're not exactly moving downwards in terms of being competitive ideally so do you leverage those assets the three second round picks from this year the potential two first round picks next year whatever else they have to move up in this draft and a lot of times the answer is no because the price is very high the top picks almost never get moved but this is you know, one of the major stories here is this is a season where Matt Vemichkov is potentially going to fall in the draft. Matt Vemichkov is maybe the most skilled player who's not Connor Bedard in this draft, but Matt Vemichkov is very much definitely in Russia for the next three seasons. Like that is not changing, barring something unexpected happening. So he could fall maybe as far as eight to Washington. So is this the year where Detroit moves up? And I, I want to talk that, about that possibility again. So. 
I'll just get pick 17 out of the way early. Um, my answer on that definitively is no at this point. Like I, a star, like an absolute, like a Dalibor Dvorsky would have to be sitting there at 13 for me to think it's worthwhile at this point just because of um, what's going to happen is because this def- this draft is so weak on defense, teams are going to reach for defense. It's going to happen. It's expected to happen. We've been predicting it for months. Every scout's been predicting it for months. Every mock draft is saying, hey, I wouldn't pick this defenseman here, but this is what I'm thinking because, you know, this is how the draft goes. They're going to pick defensemen. And that's shoving a lot of really good forwards down. Every mock from anybody reputable I'm seeing at this point at pick 17, Colby Barlow's available. Uh, in one of them, the Red Wings got one of those mocks, got Zach Benson at 17. Braden Yeager's available. Calum Ritchie's available. Matthew Woods made it that far. Why would you trade up for a player of that caliber when you're going to, in almost all likelihood, have one fall to you? Now, I know what's going to happen is three of these guys are going to fall to that pick for the Red Wings to pick a defenseman. I know this is going to happen. Yep. I've been burned on this exact scenario almost every year. Um, you're like the anti-scout. Yeah. So I know what's going to happen. We're going to be sitting there staring at Colby Barlow, Zach Benson, and like Oliver Moore and uh, Dmitry Simashev. Yay. Um, but you stole my thunder. I had a line and everything queued up, ready to go. But the one, there's one trade-up scenario for me in this draft, and that is Mitch Guff. Has to be. And that's got to be strategic because if he gets past Montreal at five, which I think is reasonable, almost likely, he's not getting past Washington at eight. So you have got, I, I would hope that get, leading up to the draft, if not already, Eisenman's had extensive conversations with Philly and Arizona about possibilities, what it would cost, what it would look like, you know. And for all we know, Arizona could be sitting there going, oh, yeah, you want to trade up for uh, Michkov if he falls? Uh, don't bother. We're going to take him if that happens. So you never know. But that is a scenario for me. Um, I would pay a very heavy price to move up just two spots to get Michkov. Because again, Washington's the big crux here. They are not afraid of Russians. They are not a team that's in a rush. No pun intended there. Um, so thank you for saving me because I was working on something terrible. Like it wasn't going to be a good execution at all. So no, appreciate that. No worries. So even though they might only jump up two to three spots, it's a very significant two to three spots because of who they are leapfrogging. Um, that is a scenario. And the one thing too that I keep seeing being brought up that I, I feel like is pretty probably worth mentioning. So of all the possibilities of the players the Red Wings are likely to take at pick nine, that obviously aren't Matt Vemichkov, how many of them are playing for the Red Wings within a year? Um, There's a couple possibilities. Ryan Leonard, maybe. Leonard stands out. I don't know if Moore is that guy. I don't think Moore is that guy. I don't... Dvorsky, maybe. Yeah, it could be Dvorsky. Reinbacher, if they so choose on a defenseman because he's a late birthday. You might not like the name, but Danielson. Again, late birthday makes sense. But for everybody else, you're probably waiting at least two years anyway, which is standard. Edvinson took two years. Sider took two years, extenuating circumstances. Mm -hmm. Most players of that caliber take two years to get here. So... You are getting an entirely different tier of player in Matt Vemichkov. Don't get me wrong. All the players I listed off, I love, and I'll be stoked if the Red Wings take at nine. I'm doing cartwheels all the way to the Kremlin if they take Matt Vemichkov in this draft. So, and all, and you're, you're, 
price to pay for that, other than whatever asset you have to get to move up the two or three spots, is you have to wait in all likelihood one extra year. And then at that point, you're getting a Matvey Michkov coming over who will likely be entering his prime at that point on a rookie contract. Yeah. Like you're losing some key years, but no, no, but that's the thing. They're not. Are the Red Wings in that three-year window even sniffing, even dreaming about a Stanley Cup? No, no. What I mean is with Michkov's talent, all things equal, he could come over next season likely. Oh, yeah. Matt, Matt Vemichkov could play in the NHL today yeah, if yeah. he wanted. But I, I think the extra year that you have to wait, the fact that he'll come over then cheap, because, again, he's not coming in on a $10 million contract. I think that is the best move for the Red Wings of all the options in this draft. And yeah, if you have to jump up two to three spots and pay a significant premium to do it, I'm a heavy advocate of you do it. And again, I'm not normally the trade-up guy. I'm almost always anti-trade-up. But this is a very, very unique opportunity that I don't know if we've seen it before. What I'll add is... I generally agree with you. I'm not in favor of spending the premium to trade up because it does come out of a premium. What we should qualify because we like to try to at least keep half a foot on the ground here is that trades of top picks, they almost never happen. Like top 10 at all, it's it, it's exceedingly rare. You know, top three to five picks, like good luck ever finding an example of that. In reality, this would be like five to eight Detroit would be trading up into they almost never happen, and they cost a ton. If you were to spit it into, you know, Prashant's trade value machine or, or any kind of tool like that, internal tools that the NHL uses to analyze, it's almost never worth it, right? Because you can get great players later. Detroit has two of them that they're are part of their core right now that they got at picks four and six. So it's it's really hard to say, yeah, this team should trade and pay that premium to move up because you're certain that this guy's going to be better. It, you, you, it's almost never worthwhile to do that from pick nine where Detroit is. But like you said, Brad, this year is special because of the players there. And I think Meechkov will be the one to fall. But hey, let's say Will Smith is falling. Then uh, I'm, you're not as excited about that player as you are about Meechkov, but you're also still really excited about Will Smith. The, the flip side to this, and I mentioned this at the top, two first round picks, Three second round picks, which are going to be one after the other. Are you really going to make three consecutive second round picks next year, barring the Boston picks sliding to the year after, which if it's top 10 protected. So in 2024, if Boston finishes top 10 in the uh, draft standings, then the Boston pick moves to 2025 where Detroit gets it. But still, two first round picks this year, two first round picks next year, three second round picks this year. Detroit's system is filling up. Are they at the top of the order? No, they're missing that superstar game-breaking talent, but they're a, a, among the better teams in terms of overall talent coming through the pipeline. There isn't room for all of them. The Red Wings don't have enough spots on the main roster to pull all of them up. I'm not saying you can't make all of those picks, but if you're ever going to have your pockets full, you just got your your Christmas bonus, your, your, your budgets came in well under budget, you're going to go splurge on yourself, this is the year to do it. Well, let's play with the hypothetical. So Montreal walks up to the draft, you know, the top four go as we expect. And they and Matt Vemichkov sitting there for them at five and they go, nope, we're taking David Reinbacher. And then the Arizona Coyotes go up for a six and they take, well, let's say Dalibor Dvorsky. Philly's on the phone. You're moving up two spots. You're leapfrogging Washington, who is, you know, all the Russians, the Washington jokes aside. <laughs> 
a very, very, very likely target for Matt Michkov. You're jumping up two spots, but you are guaranteeing yourself Michkov. And if you don't make the trade, you are basically guaranteeing no Michkov. Mm -hmm. Philly goes, we want pick 41, 9 and 41. Do you do it? Instantly. Well, I don't even, I have to mute the phone so they don't hear me laughing. In a normal year, that would be the price. It's going to be more this year. Oh, it's going to be more this year. They're uh, asking 9 and 17. And you don't do it for 9 and 17, but I don't I don't think they ask 9 and 17. I think you can get away with it with one of those second round picks, let's just say 41 for conversation's sake, and then a decent prospect. How how high up the Red Wings prospect rung are you willing to go on top of 41 to guarantee yourself Matt Vimejko? 941 and, and? Um, Booyam. Oh yeah. Instant. Wallander. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I think I do that. Like it's pricey. I don't know. Like, is there any name in your mind, Evan, that's coming where you're just like, no, I'm squeamish because of this. I started a Wallander in my head. (laughs) I was like, I don't even know if that would be enough. Cause you also then have to factor in, does Philadelphia view your prospect the same way you do? And, Almost never. I have no idea what, to be honest, I have no idea what Philly thinks ever. In the past five years, I have Not no much. idea They're what Philly's like doing. Punching people. We'll, we'll go on the hypothetical here that Danny Breer is actually a competent GM. Yeah. I would imagine that they would start higher than Wallander. I would think so too. Now, Again, they're probably going to ask for 17 for uh, or the Bruins first next year. That's probably the starting point. And, and to me, that's still too rich. Like, you're not giving up a first rounder to move two spots. I know it's Michkov, but I'm still kind of feeling buck wild. I'm, I would consider it, but I feel like you'd be able to talk him down. Cause again, in a normal year, a mid second round pick is more than enough to jump up two spots. What even if at, they even want at this Soderblom. stage? Oh, in a heartbeat. Yeah. Okay. I love okay. Elmer, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm making sure that I'm not like totally out to lunch. Yeah. Guest on the podcast. Can't wait to have him on again. He's our friend, but I'm sorry. <laughs> it's Michkov. Yeah, so I think I've uh, we've flushed out the hypothetical enough. We are all willing to give up a very, very, very significant prospect, at least in our eyes, to move up two spots. Mm-hmm. Now, again, and it's it's only two spots, and the draft charts are all going to say two spots. But if Matt, like, I can't, I have to reiterate this enough. The hypothetical you have to be going in your mind is you're jumping up to pick two. Because if there was no KHL issue, there was no war in Ukraine right now, and there was no contract issue for Matt Vemichkov, again, if he was John Smith from Saskatoon, he is the number two pick in this draft, full stop. Yeah. Fantilli probably makes it a conversation, but Michkov goes, or John Smith from Saskatoon goes two. Yep. So what would you give up to jump from nine to two? Because that's kind of the argument you're having, but the risk of all the Russian factors obviously weigh in. And that's obviously the reason he's not going in the top three. So that obviously brings the cost down. Otherwise every team would be jumping up. And I'm sitting here saying this, like there's no risk attached to this. There is risk. He might never come over. He might sign an extension in the KHL. He might be improperly developed in Russia and never reach his full potential. All those cards are on the table. Those, those risks are the reason he might be available at six, seven, eight, nine. Like, and you have to factor that in. So if you look at talent alone, you're giving up way more than a second in Wallander. You're giving up nine, Casper, 
and the Bruins first next year at a minimum to get Michkov if there were no concerns. So it's it's the risk the Red Wings are at the point where they are very well positioned to take and where they lack strength in the system, they almost need to try and make. Do you know uh, that platitude that I put out all the time where I'm like, if you knew who the hidden gems in the draft would be, they'd be drafted at the top of the first round. It just doesn't happen that way. It's whenever people ask us, who's this year's Braden Point? Or who's this year's Mo Sider, for example? And I'm like, there's no way to know because if you knew they'd be at the top, we wouldn't be having this conversation. It's kind of like a, a catch-22. This is like the one specific lane, like scenario where the way the world and the draft has played out, where you can see a top two talent, which... If it's not a Connor Bedard year, he's number one in a lot of drafts, and you might be able to get him at five, six, seven, eight, or nine. That that's the fun hypothetical is how many drafts, how far back would you have to go before and again, let's say John Smith from Saskatoon. How far back would you have to go where Michkov isn't the first overall pick? Jack Hughes? Oh, I think you're going further. I think you're going to Austin Matthews. Again, I think because of the Russian factor, people have lost sight of what a, of what a special talent Michkov truly is. I think he's a first overall pick. Again, John Smith from Saskatoon in every draft going back to Austin Matthews. Yeah, that's tough because he is mighty talented. The war really, like part of it is is Michkov's development became a little bit invisible to people. And I know the start of this past season. He also had an injury this year and missed yeah. a decent chunk of time. It didn't go as planned, but without a doubt above Slavkovsky, without a doubt above Owen Power, I think he's above Alexi Lafreniere based on our hype for Lafreniere at the time. Oh, he's even with our hype for Lafreniere at the time, he's definitively above him. Hughes, Hughes I will agree there's a question there. There's That's where you're having a conversation. Darlene would not go before me. Darlene would be close, but I think he'd be two. He'd be close enough to make it a conversation, but it would still be Michkov. He's sure undoubtedly above. Yeah. Yeah, it's just Matthews. Yeah. Yeah, in 2016. That That's what I mean. Again, I understand all the risks, but the Red Wings have a long history and success with Russians, and Iserman himself in Tampa Bay, Vasilevsky, Kucherov, he's had success with Russians. I'm sure every one of these teams is going to interview Michkov and they're going to talk to him and Michkov's going to go, yeah, I'm coming in three years. Like, what do you want from me? Like, yeah, I'm coming. And and if he's if there's any questions about, I don't know what might be, then you're not even thinking about drafting him. Yeah. You just can't. Um, but, you know, it's, it is that rare, rare, rare opportunity. It's you the- do not get talent like this outside of the top three ever. You just don't. Unless, again... You hit the jackpot on the brain point in the third round, who just turned out to be way better, but you can't predict that. And Michkov, in all likelihood, will be a lot better than Braden Point. Should be, based on the way he's yeah. tracking. Like, I think, uh, well, what was it? Michkov just had the most player. productive KHL season by draft eligible player since Alex Ovechkin. He tied a bunch of, tied or beat a bunch of goal records at the U18s two years ago. Mm hmm. Like, come on, what are we talking about here? Like, I, it, it's amazing to me, the people who are saying, yeah, but like, you know, he has question marks. Every prospect has cap question marks. This will be it, the f- th- this is not an argument about talent with Michkov. Again, if this is a pure talent conversation, he's, he's top two. This is the uh, first, probably one of the first prospects though, where the NHL teams have to contract, uh, intelligence services from across the world to get their profiles done on him though. No, I'm, <laughs> like, hey, what's Vlad thinking today? If we draft him, is he going to, you know, 
chain him to uh, his the, the rink or something like that. Like it's, I do understand the risk, but yeah, you're right, Brad. On talent, it's it's not a question. So, it, and I just want like a double prospect profile today. Oh yeah, too. it's that's how good he is. He forced our hand, but like you said, there he by all rights should be better than Braden Point, and I. At first, I said yes, and then I was like, well, he was near on a 100-point player, 50 goals. That's a hard to say, but no. Like Based on his profile, he, by all rights, has a really great chance to be even better than that. So that's why he is the accidental profile today and why we're going to continue to uh, talk about the potential for trading. So this won't be a favorable conversation or an idea for everyone. So if you have a different opinion, we'd love to hear about it. Uh, I know the the concept of trading up at such a premium is going to ruffle a lot of feathers, and not saying it's universal truth. Like we could be wrong about this. I'm sure someone from some team is listening going, oh, wow, these meatheads are at it again. You cannot give all that up for an unknown. And that's the beauty of the draft. Okay. Uh, let's move on very quickly here for an update uh, for the uh, Stanley Cup final. Game one has been played. Vegas over Florida. 5-2 with Vegas, Vegas taking that game. And got to say, it's uh, it was a little jarring to see Florida get shelled for five goals the first time in a while. Yeah, but that game was very even until late. Um, you know, I would say throughout most of the game, Vegas looked like the better team, but not by leaps and bounds. This, really at the end, it kind of came apart. Yeah, and even then, like the the Mark Stone goal that kind of salted it away to make it 4-2. How many players are picking that out of the air at shoulder height, knocking it down in front of themselves perfectly, and then immediately sniping at top corner? There's very few players on the planet who can make that play i love mark stone man oh he's so good um so yeah i mean it was good to see florida can hang um and you know that duclair goal at late 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 in the second was huge i thought that might have actually been a huge momentum swing so credit to vegas for coming out and not immediately folding in the intermission after that because that's a heartbreaker especially in those circumstances but that was a really good game on a side note you know how depressed i was watching that game how come I just spent a full ass season watching the Detroit Red Wings play hockey, and then I go, "Oh, this is what hockey should look like." Oh, that's how you feel. That's how I do that with seventy five percent of the games I watch that aren't Red Wings. Yeah, it's if you want to know, like this has become probably the most valuable mindset I've I've adopted on the podcast over the last few years. Where you know we always look at things through Red Wings colored glasses, but try to be as objective as possible. Whenever you watch a game like that, go what would happen if they were playing the Red Wings right now and these teams were playing at that level? It'd have been, it would have been 12-0. Best to not. <laughs> but but no, it's a good exercise in, look at what these players are doing, look at what the Red Wings can do. You want to win a cup, this is, fill the gaps between yeah. the Red Wings and this. I We've made the joke, oh, how did the Red Wings um, win a Stanley Cup? We're replacing their entire top line. I'm watching that game last night going, yeah, Larkin, Raymond, and let's say Fabry for a hypothetical. That is about on par with Vegas's and Florida's second lines. Yeah, on a good day. You like, say fill in the cracks. I say we we just we only have put down the foundation, which uh, the which is the too. which yeah. is the top layer of rock around the Grand Canyon. So, you know, the defense Detroit's defense is closer because you know I watch top both top pairs on that team and I go yes I can see Satter and Wallman doing this yes I can see Edvinson and. Sure, who, who the hell ever getting to these second pairs, but I think you're funny. Uh, Evan. Tough crowd today, <laughs> holy! But you you watch the the forward depth and even more on the top end talent on these teams, and it's 
it's it's stark especially with vegas like they roll everybody and all those lines can play and you're like well we're we're quite some way away yep. from that uh, unironically vegas's fourth line is might be better than the red wings second line right now that team is like you don't want to call them a sleeper team like everyone knew they were good coming in everyone knew they had a good season but with all the focus on edmonton and dallas really in the west you really do did forget for a second how good Vegas is. I agree with you. I don't think Florida was completely demolished. I think Vegas was a better team, but Florida did hang a little bit. So I'm hoping I think they were out shooting Vegas for most of the game. Although that is kind of Vegas's MO, but still. Yeah, quality chances. Yeah. Uh, I'm hoping we get a good series out of it and not what we, you know, saw by both teams previously in uh, previous rounds. But yeah, Vegas is built like Florida is playing like a team that can win the cup. Vegas is as well. And they are built like a team that can win the cup. It really like, this does not feel like a, a fraud cup final at all. Like there've been seasons in the past where you see a team there and you're like, man, they don't really stand a chance. Kind of like Nashville, Pittsburgh, that one year kind of thing where we all knew how that would go. And that's how it went. This one, both teams have a, a fair claim to it. So that's one game. Uh, game two is tomorrow night uh, at the time of recording. We're recording on Sunday evening. So game two, uh, Monday night. Okay. News from across the NHL. Let's start with, uh, if I uh, if it wasn't already done a million times, I would uh, super, I would do a cut of Kyle Dubas saying, you won't see me somewhere else in a week to him being announced as a president of hockey operations. Wow, we haven't talked about that, eh? I know. It came in right after. And, uh, you know, this isn't a surprise. It's nothing scandalous. It's just the way things go in the NHL. Like coaches get talked to while the, the current coach is still employed, that kind of thing. But how convenient that Treliving was hired so soon after and Dubis had a president of hockey operations oper- operations job so soon after with the exact kind of control that he demanded from the Maple Leafs. Every party in here knew what was going on, and it almost felt like that last procedural step where Dubas made that last-ditch offer to the Maple Leafs was more of a a formality because he knew he wasn't going to get it, but he had to ask before knowing that he was going to go to Pittsburgh. Am I wrong in thinking that, or is that a little bit too tinfoil hatty? No, it's, it's probably not quite so specific, but that's probably essentially what happened. You know, the difference between NHL jobs and regular jobs is it's very public. You know, the the Penguins probably didn't go through an intensive interview process with Dubas while he was still employed by the Leafs, but they were aware of his work. They know who he is. They know what he what he's done. Um, so, you know, they don't they, they knew they'd be very interested. And then when he gets fired by the Leafs. Yeah. All right. Let's go through a couple interviews. Let's uh, get to know each other a little bit. And then if uh, all our theories are confirmed, welcome aboard. Same with tree living again. His body works very public. And a bit of tampering in there, of course. Of course. What? Uh, no. I mean, it's the same thing in July 1 uh, at 12.03 p.m. Oh, this very complicated eight-year contract with, like, a modified no-trade clause and, you know. Uh, all the bonus payments. Yeah, and... exactly. That was all worked out in three minutes. I had like, a word template. I just looked up NHL contract and it was there. Yeah, so. Chat GT, GPT. Oh, is that added to your list? Yeah. Oh, I was, no, it's not. You can say chat GPT? GPT. There yeah, you go. Yeah. <laughs> it was such trepidation. <laughs> I don't use it that often, so I'm not always sure what the uh, the abbreviation is. You should use it to answer your text for you. Save you a lot of time. I might just do that. Yeah. But yeah, either way, if 
If you really wanted to do an investigation and do some digging, could the penguins get fined for tampering here? Probably. But then so would all 32 teams yeah. on July 1 every year. Like that's 12 just, times a season. Didn't yeah. the PA file a grievance with the league about Dubas having the same representative as Austin Matthews? It's some kind of agency thing, but from what I... Uh, I, I believe it was like they said they are going to look into it. But from what I understand, they didn't actually break any rules. So... No, there was no... It, it, ethically, yeah, there's a lot of... Uh, gray area there but by the hard rules of the cba there was nothing preventing it they worked far enough down the hall that it was okay if there's a water fountain between your office and the other office then you don't represent the same if you had to actually pick up a phone to call the guy instead of just going hey jim yeah then you're you're fine i don't understand why the pa would be upset all of the players that kyle dubis signed are gonna get paid oh y'all got top dollar yeah in their rfa years like i don't understand I love talking to Leafs fans about it because I love to find where they are on the spectrum. They're all over the place. There's no normal distribution. No, 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 no. And that, like, I just keep coming back to what you said. Like, they all got top dollar term protection that's ideal. Like, they didn't, the Leafs didn't get anything in these contracts. No. Anyways. Uh, Anyways, president of hockey operations in Pittsburgh. Dubas gets what he wants. He has a tough task now, though, because Pittsburgh, like, I, I think you can make some runs with Crosby and Malkin and Latang for sure. Like, Crosby's still one of the best players on the planet, even if he is on a quote-unquote downturn in his career. Uh, but the depth around them isn't sufficient, and their cupboard is bare. So my understanding is that they're going to try to stay competitive and to do that without any assets to give up and also try to restock the cupboard. That's... That's a big task. So if Dubas gets it done, that's a big middle finger to the Leafs to say, hey, look, I can do it. And it was even harder than it was in Toronto. But man, that is, uh, I don't want to say an undesirable job. It's a storied hockey franchise and you get to be the GM, well, president of hockey operations over uh, Sidney Crosby's team, but it's certainly not going to be a cakewalk. All right. Uh, More from around the NHL. Gary Bettman did his uh, usual State of the Union address before the cup final starts. Uh, he did his, you know, normal Arizona talk where he said, we're going to try to keep it in Arizona. It's a great market, a lot of untapped potential with fans. The fans are dedicated, et cetera, et cetera. All stuff that he has to say and you have to expect him to say. But it did sound a little less, there was no uh, 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 like vigorous support this time. Like it sounded like there was a small door open to say mm, this might have to be a relocation. And in terms of Gary Bettman's lawyer speak, that is, you know, the whole front of the house is blown off, so to speak. Yeah, I was going to say uh, Bettman even op- like having the slightest hint that, you know, there might be a time limit or, you know, we might have to explore it. He's basically got a Kijiji add up at this point. Uh, wanted new host for NHL team. Yeah, they definitely already have legal briefs from the. Uh, Ryan Smith's potential franchise in Utah and understanding what has to go into that arena and can they play in that 14,000 seat arena in Salt Lake City in the interim like that's all being prepped in the background in addition I'm sure they're also working Houston I'm sure they're also looking at Atlanta to see what's happening there Uh, this has all been happening even before the Tempe vote failed but you know this it, it really does seem like unless the Phoenix Sun the, the Phoenix Suns, sorry, uh, rescue the Coyotes here. They're on their way out. Like, there's just too much pull and too much money in other directions. 
I'm not going to say the line, and I'm not going to go down the Arizona path again because I think it's well-established how absurd this whole situation is uh, in my mind. What I want to talk about, what's the Atlanta team called? Atlanta the third? It has to be Thrashers, right? The Atlanta Threshers? <laughs> That's good, Brad. <laughs> I would have to say it would be incredibly confusing to have a Winnipeg Jets that's not actually the original Winnipeg Jets and an Atlanta Thrashers that's not actually the uh, original Atlanta Thrashers because that's now the Winnipeg Jets who aren't the original Winnipeg Jets. Like that's going to, the record books, God but, help you to hockey reference and no, hockey DB. The Atlanta Threshers would be the original Winnipeg Jets. It all ties together. It oh, all makes sense. It'll just be the Atlanta Winnipeg Jets. If you weren't cross-eyed. <laughs> you are now trying to think of that map. We'll see where that one goes. Utah, I mean, uh, Ryan Smith did an interview on 32 Thoughts, which, uh, interesting interview. Uh, good to hear from a, maybe a prospective uh, NHL owner, but that is a media tour. Like, oh, yeah. It, oh, 100%. It, and that's not a bad thing. Like, we've... We, we, that's campaigning for sure. Yeah, he knows that the more people hear his voice, the better. And it's uh, he's building that kind of public support for a team in, in Salt Lake City. Oh, yeah, he was like obnoxiously nice and upbeat to the point it was suspicious. That's how we felt about you until you had your second kid. <laughs> That's true. Evan and I didn't have any fundamental problem with who you were on the podcast. You're just too happy. It freaked us out. And for a man, you're the oldest of us three, so you've seen what the world has to offer, and it's not great. So why are you smiling was our mentality. And then Hank came around, and the, the color drained from your face, and we went, ah, that's better. <laughs> uh, moving on. More happened in terms of the public negotiations between the NHL and the NHLPA. Uh, the owners and the players would both love a little bit more of a significant increase in the salary cap. Uh, it's only scheduled to go up a million dollars next year. Uh, the NHL would love for that to be resolved by the players agreeing to pay more into escrow. And the players are not moving on that, which is a fair stance. They already hate escrow. They feel they pay too much into that. And so... Even though there's a lot of public sentiment that the NHL, because there's only like $70 million left, which is, I think, uh, approximately 7% of the original debt that the players owe to the owners because of the COVID back pay, blah, blah, blah. Even though it's it's projected to be cleared so soon and the NHL could move more than a million to maybe a million and a half or two million or a bit more, uh, Gary Bettman seems to be holding the line. And when asked, he said, no, no, it's going to be a million next year because, you know, uh, players don't want to pay more into escrow and it hasn't been paid off. And so that's, we're just going to go scheduled. He presented a, a kind of unbothered front about it, but make no mistake, that was active public negotiation. So the, uh, the owners both want their cake and they also want to eat it. They want to have their cake and eat it too. I hate that turn of phrase. Uh, and yeah. Cause that's an incomplete one. The, the, the actual quotes longer. Can you quote it all? Absolutely not. <laughs> Me neither. Well, well, I, know, I know the full quote makes sense, but I, I can't remember it. Anyhow, the the owners want to have their cake and eat it too by raising the salary cap and also getting more from the players in escrow uh, and have the players pay back that $70 million and the players are like, oh, we're not paying more into escrow. So I don't know. In the end, I think this is going to sit at a million. I don't imagine they're going to go up. And as we talked about on a previous episode, with Detroit having so much cap space, this can only be good for them. Yeah, uh, for the league, it's a downside. For the Red Wings, hey, this might be the difference between a first or a second round pick to acquire Matt Murray. I'm just saying. Or, uh, I don't know. I don't know. No other dead contracts come to mind, but it's, it might be the Red Wings' last offseason to flex their 
cap muscle. And not just not just in terms of acquiring assets. There are going to be some free agents out there, not premium free agents. This isn't like a Steven Stamkos free agency or anything like that. God, I hope not. No, 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 no. Oh, yeah, because that turned out yeah. very poorly. But you We know, don't talk about 2016. If anymore. they do want to overpay for a guy, like they really love a player, let's say it's Severson. They're not going to draft Sandine Pelica and they love Severson or they want, you know, Gudis or whoever it is. I'm not advocating for overpaying for, for free agents. I think there was a healthy amount of that already in the Red Wings past. You can go back to last summer for the most recent examples. But you have more muscle to flex than other teams in the NHL. So that's probably also a last hurrah for them to, to really be able to lean on that before things open up. Okay. One last kind of big topic here. Mike Babcock, as expected, is finally going to return to the NHL. Once his contract is up with the Toronto Maple Leafs, who are, yes, still paying him. Up, Jesus. Up until June 30th, uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets are expected to sign Mike Babcock. Um, I'm going to open this by saying, you know, Mike Babcock, I, I'm a firm believer in in second chances. And if, uh, you know, someone demonstrates that they can do better, then, yeah, by all means, I'm not saying punish them for life. And I, his transgressions are much different than those of uh, other people uh, who are on the outs in, in the league. And so I want to qualify all that. But I have no problem with Red Wings fans, not even talking about how I feel, Red Wings fans here not being a fan of Mike Babcock as a coach. Read into what, not what Johan Franzen said, but what Chris Chelios said about what happened with Johan Franzen. Uh, there are a lot of uh, players confirming what happened to Johan Franzen and how Mike Babcock treated him. Uh, we all know the stories of what he did in Toronto. Just seemed to be a, a guy who, especially towards the tail end, was a massive jerk to his players. And like that's a fine line you have to walk as a coach. Tortorella is well, one thing being a jerk. There's another thing being a bully. You can be an asshole all you want, and if you win players get over that if you're just a bully nobody wants to play for you winning or losing one of the the sorry the greatest coach of all time and the greatest coach of red wings history was a notorious hard ass like scotty bowman was not all sunshine and roses like there were a lot of quotes about you hated him every other day of the year but the day you were lifting the cup you you could kiss the guy so yeah i'm not saying every player has to be babied You've heard our opinions on this podcast. I think sometimes players do need a, a little bit of tough love. I think the modern NHL, you have to be more adaptable and a little bit more of a player's coach. All of that said, you know, towards the tail end of, of Babcock's time in Detroit, people forget this. Free agents wouldn't come to Detroit or people did, wouldn't want to be traded to Detroit because they there were such terrible stories about Mike Babcock in that room. Henrik Zetterberg has been pretty open about how he felt about uh, Babcock. I remember when we interviewed Lidstrom way back, he was pretty diplomatic about how he said it, but it was no secret that the captains of the Red Wings had to manage the way Babcock interacted with the rest of the team. So that's why Red Wings fans have such a visceral reaction to Babcock coming back to the league. So what I say to Columbus is you'd hope that he's learned in his time off. I have no idea what he's done. I don't know if he's any different as a person. I don't know the guy personally, um, but you hope for his sake and the player's sake that they've learned that he's learned how to be different in the modern NHL. He did his bit of media tour. Um, and yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer in second chances. Matt, he could not have shown any less remorse. No, when he was asked about the Franzen thing, he especially, he like hand-waved it away into, I'm sorry you feel like that, you know, which if, was a piss off. You know, we, we were talking about, you know, behind the scenes, maybe Stan Bowman, maybe Joel Quenville have been doing some things to try at least to understand their wrongs and, 
you know, do some good in the world. We've seen Babcock in public. I, again, I believe deeply in second chances. No, not here. He he has shown absolutely no remorse. And, you know, it's not even like he, he's an elite coach. He's got one cup. Look at those Detroit Red Wings from 2005 to 2012. You're telling me one cup is acceptable for that roster? Man, it is. They should have won in 09. They should have won in 06 and probably one or two other years of that you could have argued. And again, I know things happen and it's not always going to work out that way, but I feel like more than one should have happened. You know, he's not a bad coach in terms of the X's and O's. He's a good coach, but he's not anything so special that you're willing to deal with this shit or ignore his past to have him in here. Like, especially Columbus, man, you're putting Patrick Line with Mike Babcock. Good luck. Poor Johnny Goudreau, he goes from Daryl Sutter to Mike Babcock. <laughs> that was my first thought. That poor bastard. But- I like. I'm genuinely like. I don't. I, I'm at a spot where I'm like. I'm assuming. I'm just going to assume for the sake of the benefit of the doubt that Yarmo Kekalainen is a really smart guy. He's done his due diligence, and and he believes in what Babcock has done. It's not the the Red Wings, and it, it did actually come close with the Red Wings. That was a real thing, um, or close ish. It's not the Red Wings, so yeah, by all means do it. I'm not saying don't hire him. I I actually don't care. I am. Don't hire him. But Johnny Goudreau, man, they had to have gotten the all clear from him, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you don't bring in guys and pay them a big ticket and then exclude them from those types of decisions. No. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I don't like anything about this. The only, uh, there is one big upside to this. Um, Our plan and by our plan, I mean the rest of the world, to just accumulate all the bad things in Ohio is going according to plan. Oh, man. Look, I dunk, <laughs> I, I dunk on Ohio all the time. We have listeners in Ohio, and to you I say I'm sorry. We're, we're praying for you. Thoughts that you live prayers. in Ohio. <laughs> I'm from sunny Windsor, Ontario, so I know full well what I'm saying here. And so I'm, I'm happy that Yarmo Kekulainen has given us fuel to uh, uh, commit to the bit. So thank you for that. All right, before we get to overtime here, a quick uh, shout-out to our uh, friends at Bally Sports Detroit, Ken Daniels, Mickey Redmond, the entire crew over there. They were voted uh, in the top two as number two of the uh, the best NHL broadcasts across the league in the athletics poll. Uh, Seattle, of course, they do a phenomenal broadcast. I always think, and I, I maintain this, that the Red Wings uh, are, are, you know, pound for pound, uh, pound for pound, that Bally crew does the best job in all of professional sports. Like, we're really, really fortunate to have them as the local Red Wings broadcast, and to see their recognition uh, from that poll is is excellent. So, Ken, Mick, uh, the entire Bally crew, uh, hats off to you. Um, a lot of you over there who we would love to take the time to name, and uh, you'll get that number one spot back. It's it's well-deserved. But, hey, Seattle does a great job, too. Hey, another friend of the podcast, Allison Lucan. Allison Lucan. Was part of that Seattle crew. So, congrats to her. So, they won an Emmy yesterday. Yeah. Deserve, if I know anyone in hockey who deserves their flowers, it's Allison Lucan. Oh, yeah. 100%. At writing, broadcasting, podcast appearances, like she just translates the game so exceptionally well. They're very, very fortunate to have her in Seattle. Okay. Uh, we're going to take this time to jump into overtime. Uh, overtime on the Winged Wheel podcast is proudly brought to you again by our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash Winged Wheel podcast if you want to support the show. Uh, you get access into uh, our overtime bonus episodes, which record right after these ones. Uh, the Winged Wheel Podcast official Discord, which is an awesome community with channels uh, to do with hockey, the Red Wings, the draft, and then everything else. Golf, Formula One, books, music, whatever you might like. 
uh, and you're automatically entered into all of our giveaways. Uh, for example, this past season, we gave away two tickets to every Red Wings supporter, or, or sorry, to every Red Wings home game, and the vast majority of them went to our Patreon supporters. So patreon.com slash wingedwheelpodcast. Um, questions from our patrons. Arch says, hey boys, I'm sure you all saw the hilarious suggestion of Cider for Nylander by the Leafs writer this week. I did not see that. Thank goodness. I'm very glad I didn't see this. Uh, if you were Stevie, what would be your realistic offer to acquire Nylander or Marner? Brad, say the lines. No, I'm so tired. Sorry. No, actually, I will say Nylander or Marner with an extension is different. But that's mm-hmm. the thing with Marner. He's only got two years left, so that is not an option. Marner, you'd have to wait a year. Um, Nylander, you could negotiate an extension after July 1. I'll reiterate, even though I'm a big fan of William Nylander, he absolutely does not strike me as a Steve Eiserman type. They are not trading for a pending UFA. So if they are trading for Nylander with an extension, and if even if that contract's half-decent, the price is going to be hefty. You're looking at... You know, that classic three premium piece deal, you know, a first, a top prospect, and a good player or something like that. Because it's further complicated by the fact that the Leafs probably don't give a crap about futures right now. They want players who are going to help them win today. And on that front, I don't think the Red Wings could compile an offer that would interest them. Uh, It's your boy Al says, hey boys, what do you think Sider's next contract will look like? Can you ever imagine a future where he's not part of the team? Personally, I hope not. The type of player Sider is, what he brings in terms of fan engagement, what he brings in terms of how hard it is to find that kind of player, it would have to be the blockbuster of all blockbusters for him to be moved from the Red Wings. Um, what is his next contract going to look like? I mean, there's been a million defensemen who have had contracts signed uh, around his caliber lately, so this is probably a pretty easy one. Somewhere between 9 and 10 mil for eight years. Kale McCarr, it was... 11% of the cap at the time, and it was $9 million for, what was it, six years? Yeah, and then Darnell Nurse, and then Seth Jones, and then Charlie McAvoy, and then I'm... Different sh- points in the, what, like... I know, but... I, th- I think the RFA and the young status, I don't think they're going to... Not one person is looking at that Kale McCarr contract and going, yeah, that's the comparable because that was an underpayment the day it was signed. Yeah, but then equally, you can't look at the... They're going to say, well, not one person is going to look at the Seth Jones contract, which was bad from the moment Penn hit paper. I think the best comparable here, I know he's a little older than when Cider will be uh, from when it was signed, is Charlie McAvoy. That's probably your best comparable. Charlie McAvoy is at a $9.5 million deal. Mo might want a bridge too. You never know. Cause maybe he'll go, yeah, I'll take like a two by eight right now. And then, you know, in three years when the cap goes up, you're going to pay me 11 million a year. Like that could very much be on the table as well. And I'm, I know we've talked about this before, so I won't flesh out the full conversation. Cider, Raymond, the guys, you know, are going to be good and going to be good for long eight years. Don't even. Don't screw around. Get max term right away and then figure out the rest later. Uh, Brad Hot Stuff coming through. Crisco says, I don't uh, get to watch as much Wings hockey as I'd like, but that's part of what makes listening to you guys so great. Based on his numbers slash vibes to this point, can you tell me why I shouldn't be too worried about Raymond's development just yet? Uh, He's gone through damn near the same development path as every other top prospect ever has. Great rookie year. Eh, so-so sophomore year which is usually followed by a much bigger third year. So I, I expect Raymond to be hovering around the 60-point mark this year. And if he's 
if he has a similar year this year to this past season, then there's concern, but we're not there yet. Give Wallman the heart says, wasn't uh, I wasn't around for the prospect profiles last year, so I'm curious what Marco Casper's draft profile is like and how does it compare to a center we're looking at in this draft like Dalibor, Dvorsky? That's a good question. Um, we, I, I think probably the closest profile we've probably had this year to what we had about Casper last year is Oliver Moore. Uh, not the same player, but like in terms of you know, this is what they can bring to a team. This is what their ceiling likely is. This is, you know, kind of the quote-unquote profile of a 200-foot, you know, hardworking center. Um, I like Oliver Moore's offensive upside a little bit, but Marco Casper brings kind of that, you know, Brad Marchand asshole vibe that Oliver Moore doesn't. Um, so not one-to-one comparison, but in terms of impact, that's probably the closest one to this year. Frank the Tank has a pretty decent, or pretty interesting question here. It says, happy Sunday, boys. Draft question. Where would you rank Slavkovsky and Wright in this year's draft? Knowing what we know now or what we thought going into their draft? That's tough. Um, let's say what we thought going into the draft. I'd have Slavkovsky. Uh, I mean, I had them one, two. I know Wright went four. I had them basically in the same tier, so I'll just lump them together. Uh, six to eight. I think in this year, six to eight would be the range. That's tough with Wright because I was really high on him. I was big on him too. I was bigger on Wright than Slavkovsky, but I wasn't like with the way his year went and his development went. I wasn't exactly thinking he was going to be the generational player people once thought he would be. Yeah, I was big on him. I. I probably would have taken right six in this draft and then Slavkovsky eight or nine. Yeah, pick whichever one of, I don't know, pick whichever one of like Carlson or Will Smith that you is second in the, the order of those two and that's the one that Shane Wright starts to compete with in my mind. Yeah, yeah. Wright would make an argument in my mind to crack the top five. Don't know if he'd get in there, but. That that would have been the case. Knowing what we know now, I don't know if either of these guys go in the top 10, but <laughs> going into the draft. Yeah. Uh, C-Nods says, hey guys, Berggren had a great, uh, a nice breakout year and showed that he thinks the game very well. What do you project him to get points, uh, uh, to points in line next year? Do you think he could drive a third line centered by Valeno and another shooter? Where would you put him if you were creating the lineup? So what's the projection for his points and where does he end up in the lineup? Man, well, that's going to depend on what the Red Wings do this summer. Um, I think he's going to be on the third line for most of the year. I, I, Again, just the way the Red Wings are built, I think there's going to be a lot of rotation between the second, third, and fourth lines. I don't know. I think a good year for Bergeron this year, if he, if he gets in that, you know, 40 to 45 point range. I think we're happy. Oh yeah. I'd be thrilled with Yeah, 45 plus would be great. Anything above 45. I'm, uh, I'm over the boon unless he's playing on the first line. Then I expect him to carry a little more first line production, but I don't foresee that happening. He has such a baby face. Like, I know it's like, crazy. His like soft face, like pimply like shit. Yeah. You forget that he's like, he's, He's same as Raymond, and it's almost become a meme. I think on the Red Wings subreddit, it isn't now, but everyone's saying like they have to like bulk up and get strong and do the the Gary Roberts workout routine. But it is part of his game, like to get through the NHL grind of an eighty-two game season. Like you need your fitness to stay, and you need to be able to take the hits. 
In the NHL, it's just a bunch of Evans out there. They see someone smaller than them and they just body check them. Oh, yeah, you just bully them. Evan actually, uh, when he gets here before Brad uh, to record the podcast, he just waits in my foyer for Brad to come through the front door and then he puts Brad into my uh, front hall closet. It's a little ritual that they do. Reminds me of high school. So, <laughs> so Beargren needs to just basically gear up for the Evans of the world. And again, like you said about uh, Raymond, Brad, that is a very normal progression for a prospect and a young player of his type this strength comes with time old man strength's a real thing is it with you or are you slowly decaying oh no it's a real thing uh endurance is what goes in the tank yeah the, the strength despite like all the injuries and everything being sore oh yeah no you, you can you can still lift heavy shit uh you want me to go run 10 kilometers kiss my ass no hey, chance. Everyone watches the 100 meter. Everyone knows what happens in the 100 meter every Olympics. Other than that, and I'm sorry, distance runners. This is absolutely because I have no lungs and I can't compete with you. Uh, okay, let's take one more question here. New patron. Uh, Neck, welcome to the Dub Dub Club. Thank you so much for your support. It means the world to us. It says, hey, Dub Dub Club. Uh, excited to finally support the show. This was my first year watching the Red Wings despite being a Michigan sports fan my entire short life of 22 so far. I love to hear about folks who are in and around the Red Wings and maybe have been more like Lions or Pistons or Tigers fans and getting pulled in. Now's a good time to be doing that. For any who started seven years ago, I'm, I'm very sorry. Uh, but that's always great to hear. Uh, they go on to say, your show has been awesome in fostering my excitement and, interesting, uh, and interest in the Wings. So thank you. Uh, you guys talk about how the team needs to foster toughness internally as opposed to bringing in tough guys. How would the team go about doing that? Oh, man, that's tough because with so many players, it's just ingrained in who they are. And, you know, you could say, okay, well, you got to get the coaches to just motivate them to go out and do it. And that's a little bit of it. But this really is like a locker room slash culture thing. And it's it's so hard to explain. Like, you know, if someone just absolutely dummies your teammate from behind into the boards and you're the first one there, if you're not, um, your first thought isn't, I got to go punch this guy in the face now. That's a problem. Like there's no way around it. That's a problem. Like you have to, everybody has to have everybody's back. I don't care if Dylan Larkin gets dummied from behind and Jonathan Bergeron's the next guy standing there. Or if Ben Schrock gets dummied by, from behind and Michael Rasmussen is the next guy standing there, the reaction has to be the same 100 out of 100 times. Now, because it is a chain reaction and you've been in these scrums, Evan's been in these scrums, I've been in these scrums. Player A, whoever it doesn't matter it is, gets dumped, something dirty happens. Player B is the next one up. Player B is Ryan's size, roughly 5 foot 10, 112 pounds. <laughs> Turn sideways, can't see him. He's like a playing card. Exactly. Sidewalk cracks are his mortal enemy. Either way. So he's the next one in. A good teammate is still going in. The other three guys on the ice are aware of what's about to happen. And that turns into a line brawl because it's like, hey, our guy stepped up for player A. Player, Sorry, player B stepped up for player A. Player B is about to die. Players C, D, and E need to get in there. And again, that's not something you can Force. That's not something you can just tell a player to go do. That's a locker room. Everybody has to have everybody's back, no matter the circumstance. And that is one thing that has been seemingly missing, not from all of the Red Wings, but a lot of the players on this team for a long time. And we've seen it happen both ways. Like Larkin, he's almost always the first one in. 
He's the last guy you want to be in, but he's almost always the first one in. And there's been some very unlikely Red Wings who we've seen step into situations like that for the teammates. I know he's become the butt of a lot of jokes. Phil Zadina, I've seen do it a ton of times. He, he's always right in the middle of it, but then there's a ton of players who you never see do it, and that just can't happen. It's a big thing that Perron and Sherratt brought, actually, when they, they got signed. is They've been there, done that, so they they are very happy to punch someone in the nose. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, a good example of it was um, the Leaf game, Marco Casper's first game, where Marco Casper, you know, gets into some shit with bunting and all that. What happens immediately? Edvinson and Cider. I love that so much. Just, man. yeah, I know this isn't a Patreon exclusive, so I can't swear. Otherwise, my, my answer would be here. But they both basically got in Bunting's face, went, Oh, yeah? Not on our watch. Try us. Yeah. You touch him, you deal with us. And like, you saw what happened. Like, <laughs> Bunting back down like a bitch. Like, yeah. it's, it's how it works. But that has to happen all the time. All right. Uh, one more note here. Babe Landeskog says, happy pride month. Everyone hockey is better when it includes, it includes everyone. Uh, we're going to wrap up this episode of the wind wheel podcast and get to that Patreon exclusive. Uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners new and old. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. It's greatly, greatly appreciated. Uh, if you want to support the show and uh, can't support on Patreon, a great way to do it is uh, leave a rating or uh, and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google. Uh, it does make a big difference for us. And uh, to all of our patrons, we thank you, thank you, thank you. To our name-level sponsors, Arjun Shanker, Eves Bartels on behalf of the Sarah Grand Foundation, Akefer, Raymond's Missing Tooth, Icon, We Are Geelong, the greatest team of all, Glenn Brabham, Keenan O'Donohue, Yanni Burgers, Meals on Wheels, Matthew M. Rice, Cider for Norris, Croner's Left Knee, Admiral Matt S. of the Cheesebag Navy, Babe Landeskog, Brad Alotathai Crisco, Carl Brutinen and Aluski, Chris P., Citizen High Five, Connor Scovey, Cooking with Kosa, Coyote Season Tickets, and Anywhere But Tempe, Dad, Please Come Home, It's Been Five Years, Denny's Gamer Girl, Derek Enstam, DJ Denton, Give Blood, Fight Probert, Hockey Town Matt, Hassam Al-Kassem, Jay Gollum, Jacob Turner, Joel Miranda, Kalen Wood, Kevin James, King Tone, Marcus, Matt McKay, Michael Edland, R.A., Red 3, Ryan Hanna, but spelled wrong, Ryan Hubbard, Scott Martin, that's what I appreciate it's about you, Wallman's Elite Dancing D, General Andy Bohan of the Cheesebag Army, Sam Bankson, A.A. Ron, Adam Rose, Brad Hot Stuff coming through Crisco, Brad Simmons, Brian Vasha, Captain Antonio Gracias of the United Federation of Cheesebags, C.J. Wilkinson, Commander Ben Barron of the Cheesebag Space Force, Connor Leighton, Corey Prita, Darren Fick, Evans Lost Rangefinder, Frank Stanley, Ferk Bumman Lemon, all my homies use Button Lemon, Gene Sullivan, Grand Rapids Hockey Guy, Griffey Boy, Instructions Unclear, Cheesebag No Longer Fresh, James Laporte, Jeremiah Dobo, J.M. Rhapsody, John Evans, John Ingalls, Josh Yelton, Kevin McCracken, Quaz, Linda Hull, Maximilian, Melissa Erickson, Ophelia, Rudimenter, Rudimenter Alertery, Steven, Tatarsas, The Hodag, The Hat123, Whoop-dee-doo-you-hoo-poo-poo. That name always throws me. Thank you all. We'll talk to you midweek. Thanks for tuning in to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Be sure to check out wingedwheelpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to other ways to support the show, such as Patreon, official podcast apparel, and more. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Winged Wheel Pod. And of course, the hosts at Brad Crisco, at Ryan Hanna WWP, and at Hockey Town Evan.